This is a podcast by One Life Christian Church in Baldwin, New York. We pray that the following podcast would encourage you, build you up in the gospel, and lead you closer to Jesus. We remind you that these are simply tools to help you in your walk and ask that you still look for a local church to attend and serve in. Welcome to the living room. ago we started this series called the letters to the church and we've already looked at Ephesus pastor Justin preached an amazing sermon last week in case you missed it it is on the app and I'm just going to ask that you would give me just a few moments to listen to this very challenging word for us the truth is that every one of these letters that Jesus sends to these churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, every one of these letters is meant to stir up the believer. In In this context, it's the believer of this first and second century church. But for us, we can read these words and still find great value in what is being said. So today, we are looking into the compromising church, which is the church of Pergamum. And you'll note that today, we only have one slide And if we can just put that slide up quickly, it's the compromising church, and we only have these two portions of scripture, but this is the main text, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. If you'll do me the honor of just picking up the Bible in front of you, or looking through your Bible app, if that's what you feel more comfortable with, I do think there is something beautiful about pages. And as you look that up, I want to make an exhortation to the church, which is this. We're heading towards Thanksgiving, right? My favorite holiday. A lot of you know that. And the beauty about Thanksgiving is not just the food that is laid out on the table. When I think about the church, I think about a restaurant where the one that is preparing the table, the food to serve to those who are visiting is our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's preparing the meals, have you ever seen those cooking shows where something goes wrong? And the cook is preparing the meals, and on that, the table where they come and take the plates, the plates are stacking up, but something is happening, and the servers aren't moving fast enough. The tables are set. The chairs are out. The people are coming in. But the servers are few. There's much work, but the servers are few, or they're slow, or they're tired. Last week, I had a meeting with our leadership team. Those who help lead this family. And I said, I need to give them a chance to just speak to us, to the elders, and let us know what they're struggling with, where we can be of service to them. And one of the things that was the common theme was, I'm tired. Not only in the personal, but also in the church. If you'll notice that we have the same people serving over and over and over again, but For the most part, this building is filled to the brim every week. I guess Columbus Day got us. Indigenous Day got us. But the point is this, that if I ever invite you to my house, or if you invite me to yours, better yet, if you invite me to yours, I can promise you, unless you called me while I was driving by your house, I'm never going to show up empty-handed. This is a family. God calls us to be a family. And what's happening is, and the reason why I started by 
praying this prayer of repentance is that as we grow, we can fall into this American church trap that is to say, the table is set. There's nothing for you to do. Don't trouble yourself with serving the table. Don't trouble yourself with serving to the people what God has prepared. Other people will pick up your slack. Two things. One, we're allowing others to pick up the things that God has called us to serve in. That's one. And two, there's a spirit of selfishness. So today we have no slides because where our tech team said, hey, listen, people sign up and then they say no or they get busy with X, Y, or Z. So we have no one to run computers today. So what I said was perfect. We're going to have everybody pick up a Bible and read it for themselves. So this is all you're going to see today. And we're not here to stroke egos and tickle ears. We're going to hear the gospel. The Church of Pergamum was the compromising church. You're going to understand why they were the compromising church. But first, let's run to this scripture here. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. And if I can just ask for your attention, please. I don't know if anybody in this room is asking the Lord to make them a lead pastor, but one of the hardest parts of being a lead and just the messenger of a house is where you need to do corrections. There's an old correction that my father used to teach me, which was when the word is being preached, don't get up. I know that I'm another generation of pastors, but I don't hear this very often. And I'm not saying if you need to go to the bathroom, if you need to go to the bathroom, then do what you need to. But a lot of it is what I've learned as a pastor is that we're just uncomfortable in these types of spaces. And when I preach, I get it. I get it. But I'm going to ask you just to sit down and receive this because every single one of us is guilty of what we're going to talk about today, including your servant. Um, if this is your first time here, my name is Isaac Badaraco. I'm the lead pastor here at One Life. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I love you. I have maybe haven't met you or spoken to you yet, but I love you with all my heart. Everything that I'm going to say today is for your good. It may be uncomfortable, but it will be for your good, I promise you. Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that there might be food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who told, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'm going to start where we started week one, which is verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a line that is said to every one of these churches. Why? Because every one of these letters has correction. And a lot of us don't love correction. We like to feel good, but when correction comes, we have a tremendous issue. Furthermore, I don't want us to 
make the error of thinking that churches are just about feelings or emotions. Actually, it's very little feeling and emotion. It's way more transformation. If you have a lot of emotion and very little transformation, you have misunderstood the power of the gospel. In the presence of the Lord, there is tremendous emotion. You are standing in front of the creator of the universe. But if you are not being transformed, then you are not allowing the work of the gospel to manifest inside of you. The job of the shepherd, the job of the elders is a job of correction. It's a shepherd. When you're walking in the wrong direction, our job is to nudge you right back. But there are a lot of believers who think that the job of the pastor is just to be the president or CEO or this office that is just the overseer of an organization. That is not true. This is not an organization. This is the body and the bride of Jesus Christ. And our job is to correct. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing to this church, a church in Pergamum. This letter is written by the Apostle John, a man who in his youth walked with Jesus and felt the wounds in his hands. Jesus reveals to him words to write to the churches while he is in exile on an island called Patmos. The, the island Patmos is still standing today. It's still an island. It belongs to Greece, and it's right off the coast of Turkey. John has been sentenced to exile because of his persistence to worship only one God and deny other God, lowercase g, God worship. This week, we're looking at the church in Pergamum. Here's a little story or a little history and background about this city. Pergam Pergamum is just a few miles north of Smyrna and Ephesus, the churches we've talked about the last few weeks. Pergamum was a major ancient city in Asia Minor. Pergamum today is one of the best excavated ancient cities in the world, a city with a tremendously impactful history. Like the other cities, they had many temples for pagan worship. They worshiped gods like Artemis and the emperor of Rome at the time. Funny enough, one of the anecdotes that I shared this morning was that Attalus III, who was the last king of Pergamum, which was a kingdom in the time of ancient Rome. So there was no such thing as Europe. It all was the kingdom of Rome at the time, and they allowed for Pergamum to kind of self-govern, but Attalus III would die, and he would give all power back to Rome. So Rome says, hey, this is amazing. We're not going to handle one of the most crucial territories in the region at the time. Why? Because if you look at a map, Turkey kind of hangs in a space that connects two worlds, what is today Europe and also today the Middle East. And the Middle East, of course, is the passageway to the rest of Africa. I find that we depreciate in a tremendous manner the impact that Africa had on the growth of the gospel. And I'd like to invite you into looking into the history of our faith to know that a lot of these brave men not only worked in the European areas, or what is today the European areas in the gospel? No, it's the Middle East, it's all of Asia, it's all of the northern portion of Africa, and eventually, of course, as the gospel was doing, started reaching to the ends of the world. So in Pergamum, you could find a temple for every deity you could think of. It's similar to going to the Star Tour in Los Angeles. I don't know if anyone's ever done that, but what happens is that you get on this tour and you go sightseeing to go see where the famous people live. And so when you would stroll down the streets of a, a, an alive Pergamum, 
You could find a temple for every single God you could think of. In Pergamum, you could find a God to satisfy every dream, passion, and desire that you could imagine. It sounds ideal to our flesh, doesn't it? If you needed healing, you went to the temple of healing. If you needed wisdom, you went to the temple of wisdom. If you needed love, you would go to the temple where love was found. You can only imagine what type of worship happened at the temple of love. Have you ever seen the medical sign with the staff and the two serpents? The sign derived from the city of Pergamum because of a practice in a temple dedicated to the god named Asclepius. The Asclepion, which was the temple, was also known as an ancient time for that city as a, as a hospital, a place of healing. The Asclepion was an ancient temple of healing where people from all over would come to be healed, and the healing was done by serpents. There was a practice where rooms would fill with sick people overnight, and they would go into a trance from drugs and aphrodisiacs. Overnight, non-venomous snakes would fill the room, and they would crawl among all of the sick. And the expectation was that as the sick made contact with these serpents, that the contact and the licking from the snakes would heal them. I know, it sounds terrible. Funny enough, people still practice this. This is what the church in Pergamum was dealing with in the first and second century church. So here is what Jesus says to this church in verse 12. Jesus, as we said, remember, there's like a formula for these letters. Jesus announces himself to the church. He says the words, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 13, Jesus says, after announcing himself, he says, I know where you dwell. He's talking about the current state of the church. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in, the, in, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. What does Jesus mean by where Satan's throne is? See, in Pergamum, there was a, there was a temple where the god Zeus was worshipped. Anybody remember Saturday night they used to Hercules? Anybody used to watch that? Xena, warrior princess? Anybody? Probably shouldn't have been watching that. But um, we didn't have all this fancy stuff that we have today. See, in, per, in, in pagan and Greek mythology, Zeus was the almighty, and he was seen as the god of gods, all lowercase g. He was the lord of the lords. You can imagine how many gods existed in this ancient world. You can find a temple, like I said, for every single one of your cravings. And all of those gods fell under the authority of Zeus, the god of the sky and thunder. Pergamum and its vast idol worship were seen to Jesus as the work of Satan. And because this city held great religious influence among the pagans, Jesus called it the throne of Satan. In addition, Pergamum had one of the biggest and most advanced libraries of its time where you could find more than 200,000 pieces of written history in the library of Pergamum. And we're not talking about your local Baldwin, Oceanside, Long Beach, Farmingdale library. It's libraries. The network that existed at the time for written literature isn't what it is today. So 200,000 pieces of literature found in this city of Pergamum. It was a city with great influence. It wasn't as financially impactful as Ephesus, but in terms of the culture, 
It was a culture-rich community. So where Zeus sits as the king of these kings and the god of these gods is where Jesus says the throne of Satan is. And then, then Jesus recognizes the good work that this church is doing by not denying him and even facing death. Like the faithful Antipas, who was martyred as a result of being accused of apostasy for leading people away from temple worship and towards Jesus. All believers in Jesus Christ in the first century were at great risk of abuse and even death for what the religious at the time would call atheism. If you are unwilling to receive our deities and our gods and worship in our temples the way that we worship, you are atheist. And that would be an accusation, ironically. They said that the Christians didn't believe in the gods, and so they were to be punished and marginalized. So this was something that Jesus praises about the church in Pergamum. But immediately this temperature changes in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. The greatest issue for this church wasn't that the church was in Pergamum. It was that Pergamum was in the church. So it wasn't that the culture, the city that they existed in, it was that the culture of the city had now infiltrated the church. Christians in the early church had to make an upfront decision to sacrifice everything they had, everything that they were to follow Jesus. This is a great contrast to how Christianity is today. We gather in comforts and prepare ourselves for a future persecution, but much of the world doesn't devote themselves this way. They have to, from the beginning of their walk with Jesus, make announcements that they are resigning to their lives that they formerly were living, and that they have surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian in Iran, one must register as a Christian and promise to not proselytize, which is that they are making this, this very legal commitment to not evangelize and not spread the gospel, which is the contrary of what we are supposed to do, according to the book of Matthew 28, 19. We are to go... And make disciples of all the world, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus has always looked for, for us to repent and turn away from our flesh and sin, to be transformed and to sacrifice ourselves for his sake. In Iran, as of 2020, only 1.5% of the population was Christian. But somehow it is one of the most rapidly growing Christian communities and movements in the world. I'm not saying they have as many Christians as we do. What I'm saying is that in the face, in the midst of their persecution, they are still rapidly growing faster than we are. See, what we are doing is filling buildings. What they are doing is actually making disciples. What does disciples mean? It's an invitation to abandon your life and choose to walk with Jesus. You see, the rest of the world or much of the world makes a decision to abandon themselves and pick up their cross and follow from the beginning. But for us, we get to sit in these religious freedom comforts and say, one day when the church is person, and I believe this because I've said it, 
One day when the church in America is persecuted because it's in Scripture, it will happen, my friends, is when we will feel what the rest of the world has been feeling forever. And how will we respond after having so many generations of comforts, of lack of transformation, of simply following organizations and systems but not actually being convinced in our hearts of hearts that Jesus is Lord? And you know how that's proved to me, especially as a pastor? Because we have to beg people to serve. That has, that has to sit heavy with all of us. We have to beg people to serve. Because we're easily overwhelmed by the work of the Lord. Because everything that happens in the world is more important than what's happening in the house of the Lord. So when we stand up here and we say, hey, listen, there is much to be served at the table. We need to have those who are willing to come and serve with us. Because this is not about just one person, my friends. And I'm free to say that because he's called me to lead this in this season. And what a beautiful season to lead it in. But guess what? We have to do it in a way that is healthy. That is the health of our church. Not that we would have 500 people. Quite frankly, I don't have a dream to pastor 500 people. Because guess what? I can't. Like, I'm still fairly young, but I can't remember 500 people. I can't have 500 people at my table. I personally can't feed 500. My Lord can, but that's not the goal. But have you realized in America that the goal is the, the bigger the church grows, the more successful we have become? That's false, my friends. I'll tell you what. Sometimes the consumerism in our own house makes me feel like I want to go back to my living room. I want to grab 10, 15 faithful and go back home and just start over in my living room. And you know what? If it gets to 20, why don't we go ahead and send them out to somebody else's house? This is, this is where I am, quite frankly. And I know we're live streaming. Can I be honest with you for a second? But the truth is this, my friends. If you are unable to sit in your home and share the gospel with your neighbors, then we are failing. We're failing. This is something to celebrate because we get to have communion together. We get to celebrate with the Lord. We get to lift up a praise. What a wonderful time of worship we just had. But if you guys leave through that door right there and you are not transformed and convinced by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only for yourself, but also that you have to go out there and find somebody and tell them, I know that you are sinking, but I have something that will save your life, then we're failing. We're failing. What good is it if you're unwilling to be obedient to the call to make disciples? What good is this? So this is what's happening to the church in Pergamum. The consumer in us is unwilling to give up the pleasures of the flesh. Many early Christians in Pergamum looked for ways to compromise and remain Christian while still being able to worship God's and in ways that dishonored God. What did that look like for Pergamum? It looked like them meeting in homes in secret to talk about Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Deliverer. But then they knew, like, we want to meet, we want to eat meat. And where do we find meat? Well, you could find meat outside of the temples where they were butchered and killed as sacrifices to these gods. So you would go and say, listen, I want some beef. And you would go and you would order. Paul says there's no problem in you buying meat unless it's been sacrificed as idols, in idol worship, or for the idols. But this is not what's happening here. The Christians in Pergamum, they want to remain people of influence. They don't want to be ostracized. 
And in order for them to continue to be of importance in their city, they have to make a compromise. We'll worship in secret with the believers, but out loud we'll go and we'll worship. And, and lit, when, when I talk about sexual immorality, it is literally just orgies of people in a temple. I know that's offensive. This is what's happening. This is exactly what's happening in worship. And when you're fully in your flesh and your mind is lost to the world, that doesn't sound so bad. But Jesus says, no, I can't permit this. The teaching of Balaam was one that taught that it was okay to play both sides. Balaam would teach the Israelites how to commit sin against God with idol worship and sexual immorality with foreign women, which wasn't allowed for the people of Israel at the time, but to still call themselves the people of God. My friends, we're we're playing the same game. We're playing the same game. We're playing with the world, but then we still come on Sunday and we're saying like, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, there's something that I ask my children all the time. I say, what makes you a Christian? I say, Ava, my seven-year-old, Ava, what makes you a Christian? And little by little, she's gathering her her nuggets to answer the question. Oh, well, I go to church. No, that's not what makes you a Christian. I believe that my Lord died for me, for my sins, that he is my Lord and my Savior, seven years old. A little bit too much for Allie, who's three. But that, la- that language, that language, it, it has to come into play. They have to know. And I say the same thing to you if perhaps you're starting your relationship with Jesus. What makes you a Christian? It is not your Sunday attendance. What makes you a Christian is for you to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And for you to recognize that you live in this world, but you don't belong to this world. I was a little nervous about saying what I'm about to say now, but hey, you know I'm not built like that. Halloween. (laughs) Outside of my house. I walk, and Allie looks outside. She's like, Daddy, that's crazy. And I look to my left, and there is this thing sitting on a swing with hair, like, on the face, swinging because of the wind. And then there's, like, this jack-o'-lantern thing. Like, my friends, do you understand this? What a great time to preach this message of compromising. The world is literally celebrating Halloween because now even in my parents' country, right? Well, I'm, from, I'm from Ecuador. Even in Ecuador, people are looking forward to October 31st. The thing is, nobody needs to convince you into celebrating evil. They just need to package it nicely, right? So this is what we're doing. We're finding ways, and many of us in this room are guilty of this. We're finding ways to compromise where we can still be relatable with the world and so we don't feel ostracized. Check out what John chapter 15 verse 19 says. It says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Listen, please. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, therefore, the world hates you. Is this making a little bit more sense? We are children of light. 
We cannot celebrate darkness. However, I will tell you this because I grew up in the church, so I know how some of you are like, yeah, I'm not sending my kids to school that day. Be wise. Be wise. I think one of the greatest disadvantages that the church, one of the greatest mistakes the church made, especially when I, the gen, like my generation when we were small, was to teach us lies for the sake of manipulating us with the very same. You can't go to school on October 31st because it's the devil's birthday. That's a lie. As a child, feed me the truth so that when I'm older, what I remember is the truth. You are created by the Lord to be different because if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God's. If you're a friend of God's, the world will hate you. That's the truth. So my seven-year-old and my three-year-old, you know what? Girls, you get dressed like it's a regular Tuesday and you go to school. And when they offer you something Halloween related, you say, no, thank you. When your friends come dressed up in crazy costumes, be kind, be loving. Because he said that the world would know us by what? By our love. But we need to teach our children and even learn ourselves as adults that we are supposed to be different. If you are finding that a lot of your friends are people who are not saved and you do well and you're like, oh, no, no, I'm like, I'm going to bring them the gospel. But it's, it's, a, it's a lie. You're doing more of their stuff than they're doing your stuff. And for people who are convinced in the gospel and you're living in this outward faithful way, a life of righteousness, you'll find you're going to lose most of your friends. You are. You're going to lose most of your friends. And you know what? That's all right. That is all right. We don't give enough value as Christians to the art of purging. Go. Go. I'm going to say this, but I know it's going to hurt some of you. If you sit in this room and you don't like what I say about the gospel, you don't like what the Bible says about our Lord Jesus Christ, go. Go ahead. What we want is people that want Jesus Christ. And if you have to be convinced, amen. Yes, yes, but no. Like, it's a lot of us that you had to ask yourself, like, do I really want you? This is what Jesus says to Pergamum. What is Balaam doing? He's teaching them ways to, what, play God? Like, that makes no sense. And these are people who would come to know Jesus, who knew God and who knew the power of God. You cannot sit at table at the table Jesus sets while engorging yourself with the food the devil lays out. The very same thing happens with the theologies that we ingest. The people of God want the goodness of God, but instead of, of accepting suffering with joy, we move from place to place, from church to church, from theology to theology, seeking pleasures from the church that will satisfy our own sinful cravings. Like Ephesus, the Pergamum church was losing its way with the early church. There was this genuine and intentional desire to serve Jesus with everything that they had. Anybody drink or like do tea detoxing or drink this green juice? You got to help me out of keel again because I forgot. Yeah. These green juices, right? 
and you got your blender, you get a special blender just to make your morning drinks. Like you do for like a week and then you don't do it again. <laughs> but you get all, you get cucumbers. Help me out now because I don't do this. Spi- that. Watercress, spinach, and you're. So what is the purpose of detoxing and green juice? It is to make good of your body, to cleanse yourself. This is meant to build up your immune system or whatever it is that it does. But the truth is that as much as people say that they love it, I don't believe them ever. (laughs) That looks terrible. But I am not a man of ignorance. You're putting all of this green stuff in a cup. It's got to be good for you. It's natural. That makes a lot of sense. But it's a little bitter. So what happens? Let's throw an apple in. Let's throw some some orange juice in there. Some natural sweeteners. And what happens then? Now it's in a nice see-through cup so other people can see what you're doing and that you're green juicing, right? (laughs) And then it gets that bubble top. And what happens on that bubble top? Well, that's a lot of wasted space. I know what we can put. Whipped cream. You see, it's becoming more palatable. And now that you have a lot of sugar, what happens now? Well, let's just bring out the caramel. <laughs> One scoop of sugar, two scoops of sugar, three scoops of sugar. What happens now? All of a sudden, you're at Starbucks. <laughs> you see how this has, happens with the gospel? The gospel is not supposed to be something that when you swallow it, it's supposed to be like, mmm, good. No. It invites you to sacrifice. He says, Pick up your cross and follow me. But what we're ingesting these days is literally everything we want to hear. Right? We come to the church. Or or better yet, you come to my house. Why are the floors this color? Have you noticed that you go to somebody's house when you go to the bathroom, first thing you do is like. (laughs) I wish I had a half bathroom because it's kind of weird. Why are the walls this color? Why is the couch so dirty? I have little kids, ma'am. Little kids are gross. Why are the lights so bright? You know what would have been good? If, like this light right here would have been perfect. Like you have so many ideas when you have no hand in what is happening in that home. And the same thing happens when we come to the church, my friends. We're focused on everything. Man, this building is small. When I walked in here, that it's hot in here. What? Like, this is exactly where the enemy plays, my friends. All of a sudden, we start getting distracted by all of this whipped cream, and we forgot about that juice. Can we be true to this gospel that God is wanting to give us? It's not that hard to hear it and receive it. It is difficult to swallow it, though. I find this to be sad, however. It wasn't the whole church of Pergamum that was guilty of compromising. But what we can learn from these letters to the church is that the sins of some affect the entire body. We as a church depend on the righteous living of one another to truly call ourselves a united church and one that carries the manifest presence of God in this dark world. We depend on the righteousness of one another. Jesus is the light, and we are to all of us, individually, but also corporately, walk together in him. Verse 17, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit 
says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of this hidden manna. I will give him a, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus calls this church to repent from their compromising ways and makes them this beautiful promise. He promises them manna, which is not just food for their bodies, but food for their spirit, food to satisfy their spiritual bellies. And we've been saying this a lot this year. Some of you right now are sitting here and you are thirsty. You think it's water, but it's something way, way more, way more than just the natural food for your belly or water. Then he speaks of this white stone. In ancient times, courts and judges existed, just as they do today. And at the end of a trial, the presiding judge would approach the accused. And if they are acquitted, they would present to them a white stone in a vessel to signify that they were no longer guilty. Are you understanding what this means? If you repent, I will not take your life is what, they, what he promises them. And then he also promises them, I'll also give you a white stone with not the church name. It's not going to say One Life Christian Church Stone. It's going to say a name that only you will know, that you belong to him, that his salvation for you is personal, that his forgiveness of all of your sins comes directly from him, not for just everyone else, but specifically for you. He says that the white stone will have a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's something else that someone kind of aligned with this verse of scripture, which is that in ancient times, if you were invited as a guest of honor to a party, they would engrave on a piece of white marble your name and your invitation. And they would bring this to your house and give this to you. So we didn't have invitations like we have them today. It was especially written, or specially written, on this white marble, which was precious then, just as it is now. And you would receive this as an invitation to a party. And our Lord does this for us. Because every one of us in here is in this courtroom, this hypothetical courtroom, but will one day be real, and we are all guilty. And Jesus says that he promises us to give us this white stone that says to you, not guilty. Some of us don't understand what that means. Some of us still sit in denial that we have been wretched and we are covered in sin and that we are this Pergamum church many times, that we compromise with Jesus on a thousand things. But today, my friends, he calls us to repent. So I wonder if you would make a decision today to repent. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. One Life Christian Church is located in Baldwin, New York. To find out more about the church, visit us at www.onelifeli.com.